0: Global Capital Podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Global Capital Podcast. I'm Ralph Sinclair and I'm the frequent issuers managing editor.
1: And I'm Mike Turner, corporate bonds editor.
0: Regular listeners will of course notice that uh, my regular co-host John Hay is not here. He is in Marrakesh with some of our other colleagues uh, reporting from the IMF World Bank meetings. And he'll be back next week and we'll no doubt talk about everything that was said there. And no doubt one of the big focuses at those meetings will be the trouble that's been going on in the Middle East uh, this week. Coming up later, we'll be talking to our senior emerging markets reporter George Collard about the ramifications for emerging market bond issuance. Um, but it's it's not the only part of the capital markets where that's had an effect or is believed to have had an effect, but uh, as we'll discover, perhaps not quite as big an effect as as you might initially think with um, other other influential factors uh, having a far worse effect on on deals that have been going on. and. That's certainly been the case in the equity capital markets, hasn't it, Mike? So there's been another another pulled IPO.
1: That's right. It's getting quite depressing in Europe's uh, IPO market. Um, on Wednesday afternoon, a French software company called Plannersware um, got right up to the finish line and then and then pulled its IPO um, on the Euronext Paris, blaming poor market conditions.
0: Yeah, it, it got to the point where I'd set the price, uh, 16 euros a share, which was admittedly at the bottom of the pricing range they'd set. And it, of course, would have been the biggest French IPO for like a couple of years. And that followed uh, barely a week on from Rank, the German company that makes uh, bits for defense vehicles. They got to a very similar stage and then also pulled its IPO with a similar reasoning. And I found that a bit of a puzzle, or uh, well, both of those deals, a bit of a puzzle, because certainly, yes, there were events that... Um, you know were are sort of bad for the market and bad for sentiment but if you actually look what's happened to say the euro stocks 50 well it's actually up on the week um and it's you know over the last month it's it's not vastly different it's down one percent i think or 1.09 percent or something like that so i i thought that blaming market conditions was i don't know it seemed to me a to be yeah, a bit neg- negligible
1: really and it's and it's yeah. weird how um, why have a range if you don't want to price at the bottom of it?
0: Well, indeed, indeed, yeah, absolutely. And if you are telling everyone the deal's covered as well, um, yeah, and no, I, I don't know. I mean, Aiden uh, Gregory, our sorry, our Equity Capitals Markets editor, who who's been covering all of this, uh, wrote a leader column for us yesterday that um, you know sort of made this point that it's just this is just bad. This is just bad behaviour for a market that's that's really struggling to get any any deals done. It really doesn't help, does it?
1: It doesn't, and I wonder what the um, advisory would have been to from the banks to the clients. Mm. Um, I, I, you know, it would have been very interesting to be in the room there to hear whether the clients refusing to do the IPO or that mm. they're being advised not to, because mm. um, that would obviously be, you know, very different. A client can sort of do what they want, right? Because they're the company paying the money. But um, yeah. yeah, uh If if there is a if there is are these worries that are coming up right to the finish line and you know presumably clients these IPO companies have got the money in and they can see what investors are going to buy what um, and they're still deciding to pull then yeah as you say why would an investor want to you know take that sort of risk in the European market yeah,
0: I mean, you know, presumably companies don't like the valuations that they're seeing. Uh, but why would an investor commit to a higher valuation when when there's no certainty that the deal is going to go ahead? I feel like this all becomes very sort of self self reinforcing and and bad for a market that's sort of really struggling to get deals. On. I mean, you know, like let's be honest, uh, no one's sort of saying that the issue did anything wrong. In the strictest sense, it's perfectly entitled to go ahead with its deal or not sell its company or not as it sees fit. Um but it it certainly wasn't a help uh to a market where so few deals are are getting done.
1: Yeah, and I think the other the other worry with it is as well, from a grander scale, and I'm sure that that Plannersware doesn't care about this, but you know, it's our job to look at the entire market, but having two deals do this in quick succession is you know, they're starting to get towards a trend, right? Especially when there haven't been many IPOs in Europe. Um, and this is a trend that is certainly not going to be welcomed by anyone. Really, yeah. it's not going to be welcomed by other companies looking to IPO because that, you know, the level of trust is is diminished with investors. Um, investors are going to hate it. Um, and I'm not sure if banks will get their fees from it, even if it doesn't IPO, but maybe they'll be the winners out of it probably the lawyers (laughs) lawyers will win
0: lawyers do great yeah exactly exactly um well I tell you where else there might be well maybe not winners but there will be some or there is tipped to be some equity capital markets issuance and uh that is of course the Middle East where else yeah the Middle East has
1: has been doing pretty good like it did great last year slowed down this year but the fact Mm. that it's still um you know looking to put out out deals uh, despite you know there being a war on the doorstep of some of these issuers um really speaks to the you know it's a testament to how strong the market is there at the moment
0: amman telecommunications has been marketing a deal for more than a week and there are also said to be a lot of other issuers out there readying deals before the the end of the year Uh, of course you know we should point out that Probably the reason is that they are—they um, are, of course, not really doing any business in Israel, and Israel isn't really doing any business with them for obvious reasons. Um, but certainly, although you're right, there's been a quieter year for that market. It's—it's—it's um, it's, it's still still a regular source of equity capital markets activity.
1: Yeah, and, and despite the the uh, countries not doing business with each other. Um, there's, you know, it's still conflicts on on the doorstep that by its nature involves a lot of the countries nearby um, mm. through diplomatic means or, you, you know, it's it's a, it's a sort of global conflict, really, the, the mm. amount of countries mm. are, are having to give a pine on on where they stand on it. So it's, it's still remarkable, I think, that um, the Middle East equity markets can still just be so strong and just carry on as they are. I, I think it probably speaks incredibly highly to the to the mass of um regional sort of localized demand for these deals yeah that has been still untapped even though they had a stellar year last year
0: yeah absolutely uh, meanwhile in europe um it's hard to see where the next deal is coming from the next ipo anyway uh there was um uh one tipped to happen from dkv mobility but uh Still hasn't launched its intention to float, Um, so we'll be watching that situation closely in the weeks to come. Uh, Now, speaking of corporate capital raising, uh, Mike, you uh, worked with our new syndicated loans reporter Anna Fatty on a very interesting story this week about an emerging trend uh, in private credit. Now, um, first of all, let's let's define what private credit is. I feel like it's one of these sort of newfangled thing that's banded around as if people uh, know intimately what it is. But it seems to mean different things to different people. What are we what are we saying here?
1: <laughs> so we we define private private credit as direct lending from institutions that are not banks to companies, so essentially loans from uh, investment houses.
0: Fine. So that's I mean, that's been a growing business uh, for well a few years now. Um, and it's really sort of you know stepped in at different times or difficult times when bond market access wasn't possible to certain companies um but now it might be eating up the uh sh- eating up a share of the syndicated loan market is that right
1: yeah so i I wrote a few weeks ago about how um private credit lenders are looking more and more at investment grade companies so um after the global financial crisis really it was a high yield market and the leverage loan market where this flourished and it really really did flourish um but now the the move is towards investment grade because basically because yields have gone up so these private credit investors are thinking well why shouldn't I lend to a better rated company and and get the same return return. yeah Yeah. exactly um and now uh the how this has grown um that that Anna discovered um is that private credit companies are being tipped to finance uh, the parts of the loan market that loans bankers can no longer lend to, mainly for, for PR reasons, such as oil and gas.
0: Right, okay, so yeah, as we as we say in the headline, it's a dirty job, but someone's, someone's got to do it. Um, it's, is, I mean, how do the, how do the syndicated loans bankers feel about this because i feel like over over years now uh, global capital uh, every time i see a story about the syndicated loan market is a bad one for them like, it's always diminishing volumes or there's not enough to be done or or whatever else i mean is is, is that right Or oh, i mean what, yes, how do they feel yeah. about uh, these companies eating their eating their business
1: well i i can't remember i've written about loans for years and years and i can't remember ever speaking to a banker who said, Oh, we've got great volumes this year. Everything's fine. (laughs) Um, There's always, always the fight for loans, especially in Europe where it's, um, seen as very overbanked and there's lots of lenders um, as opposed to the US, which relies much more on the bond market for its corporate finance. But um, Mm -hmm. in, in this instance, uh, loans, bankers that Anna spoke to, and she spoke to some sort of very senior ones and at different types of institutions as well. So, um, you know, ones who, you know the sort of people who really see a lot of flow and really have a good feel for the market. Um, yeah, like a
0: big universal type bank. Yeah yeah, exactly, like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um,
1: uh, they they they're happy with where private lending is coming in because it's coming into things like um, maybe lower rated oil and gas companies or small smaller oil and gas companies to provide financing that um, that they don't feel that they can do. Uh, because, they, and that, you know, I guess
0: that's. Firstly, because they're under increasing pressure not to lend to dirty companies anyway, and I guess so. It's handy for them, and also these are going to be like smallish companies, presumably, or much smaller than the big multinational blue chips and the oil yeah, majors that yeah, I mean, they want to lend to.
1: Let's be clear that no bank is not going to lend to, you know, Shell or Total or something like that on this ground, mm. um, because yeah. those companies have just got so much in the way of auxiliary business. That, um,
0: so, what's the fig leaf that these banks can use to lend to those those huge companies? Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, I mean, I I'm highly skeptical of parts of the ESG market, but for a lot of these, you know, oil majors, even the US ones, which have been very much against it for for a long time, it's the uh, sort of transition element. So they've all got these big transition um, plans to net zero greenhouse gas emissions. Right, Right. The right. so they're
0: greening even if they're not green and that's, yeah, that's the, yeah. yeah okay. And to well, be fair, fair, I mean, enough.
1: the argument, the argument is that, which is a valid argument is that if you're an oil and gas company and you are transitioning to net zero, that's going to have a much bigger effect if you, that can be financed yeah. than, you know, a windmill company making more windmills. Um, so yeah, so, you know, I'm not, I'm not totally, you know, the argument's there and it's, it's a valid argument, but, um, smaller companies typically have less developed or non-developed um, transition plans because they're much more focused on just the day-to-day business of making their company get to profit or survive, you know. Um, so that's where the private credit lenders can step in.
0: Yeah. Do we have any examples of um, some of the lenders and the, some of the programs that they're developing in this in this sort of part of the market?
1: Yes. Well, um, BlackRock, you know, the, the investment behemoth, um, it's it has, uh, last week launched a climate transition oriented private debt fund. Um, and that is a private lending fund within its 84 billion dollar global private debt platform. So that's, you know, it's not small money at all. Um, and I think the the climate transition part of that is, you know, it's notable cause it, it indicates that they're going to be targeting companies that need to transition away from greenhouse gas emission. Um, so, you know, it sort of falls into this into this story along with everything else. Um, and this comes as, um, the global private credit market is expected to grow to 2.7 trillion by the end of 2027. And that's up from 875 billion in 2020. Um, and that's according to Morgan Stanley. So, you know, this is a very heavily growing market and I do wonder how much syndicated loans bankers will, um, be happy with the growth of this market once these private lenders stop lending to oil and gas and start thinking, oh, why shouldn't I lend to, you know, fast moving uh, consumer goods or car makers or, you know, any of the other types of uh, borrowers that syndicated lenders like so much.
0: Yeah, because one of them in the story um, told Anna that he thought it was a, a symbiotic relationship, right? Or that you know there was sort of room for all. Um, I guess I guess his point, you know, to the point you made earlier is that uh, a huge, huge bank doing big syndicated loans to blue chips probably, you know, it's much more efficient for it to do that and then harvest that ancillary business you talked about that's more more profitable for it than to do all the credit work for a much smaller. Um, you know, uh, to do much smaller tickets to these sort of, you know, dirty industries and smaller companies, but I wonder how long that will last.
1: Yeah, for sure. And the, we're seeing this sort of play out in the real estate market. Now real estate has had a real difficult time in raising finance, um, the last year, particularly in the bond market, uh, but also lenders are more selective you know, traditional mainstream lenders and private credit has stepped in there, but real estate isn't always going to be having a bad time. You know, these, these things come in ebbs and flows, swings and roundabouts. And when, when it comes, uh, you know, the cycle turns, and they're in a better place, there, there's a chance that private credit will then have their lines for these companies, you know, and, th- and that's where they'll turn for their money. Um, and this is, it's not always the case, you know, uh, syndicated loans bankers in particular, because it's all about relationship, they like to say, well, we've got these great relationships with clients. Um, and they you know, they know we're there for them for thick and thin and stuff like that, which is sometimes true, but that would work also work for private credit investors. They'll, they'll feel the same way. Um, but then also sometimes it's, it's not true at all. And corporates have told me many times, they just go, for whatever's the cheapest or whatever's the best, best option. Yeah. They don't really care about the no. relationship. Um, and you know, that means that private credit can, you know, work its way in there as well. So yeah, I think, you know, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? That, that, for syndicated loans bankers and their business that companies are still getting financing and it works symbiotically. But, you know, if that financing is better than what they can offer or more available than what they can offer, then why would a company bother to go through all the fast syndicated loan?
0: Well, quite. I mean, I, I think to your point earlier, I think we can safely assume there'll be some some uh, some lawyers that win big here. But also, it's, it's really good for the uh, for the companies borrowing the money, isn't it? There's is more more uh, sources of cash scrapping for their attention.
1: Yeah, good for them. Um, you know, it means prices will come down because they'll need to be more competitive. Um, they'll have more avenues to raise debt. Um, so yeah, from a from a corporate treasurer side, it's it's great news.
0: Okay. Well, speaking of avenues that are open or closed for for raising debt, we spoke to George Collard uh, about the prospects for emerging market bonds in the wake of the attacks in Israel and Gaza. <music> Hello, George. Welcome back to the podcast. Morning. Thanks very much for having me on. Uh, now, first of all, uh, what was the effect of the trouble in Israel and Gaza uh, this week on emerging market bonds? Presumably, this is where you would feel the most acute, acute pain from such a such a conflict.
2: Yeah, it it was certainly an, another unwelcome event for emerging market investors. Um, Israel bonds dropped three or three to four cash points on Monday. Um, so not. A, good day, but it's certainly not a disaster and bonds from um, some neighboring countries, um, they dropped a bit less Um, and and Israel bonds have actually rallied since Monday as well. So in terms of bond prices, it didn't have a huge effect, but I think the the main effect is sentimental, which is quite hard to quantify, of course, but it's just not something it's, it's, it's uncertainty in a region that has always been quite had the potential for volatility, but it's just that uncertainty of what is happening, what might happen next. That's what investors don't like.
0: Yeah, yeah, I guess they they're not um being overly cautious if bond prices are only falling by by that that much. Um but there I guess there weren't any new deals this week like as a result.
2: No, um none in dollars at least. There there was a small Hungarian bank that printed in euros but no, nothing in dollars um from the CMEA region. Um that was partly because of Israel, but it was also not expected to be a particularly busy week for dollars.
1: So George, if if Israel wasn't the um, the main driver of there not being uh, issuance this week, what, what do you think caused it?
2: Well, firstly, there was a, a holiday in the US and, and some parts of Asia on Monday, so that's quite a large investor base for emerging market bonds to not be at work, so you, you just wouldn't print a bond in dollars on, on, on a day like that. Um, secondly, on Wednesday, the the, the minutes from the, the last US Federal Reserve meeting were released. And on Thursday, there was US inflation data, which are the kind of thing that can introduce some volatility in, into the bond market.
0: Okay, so US CPI, uh, the inflation reading, came in a little higher than expected. Um, I think it came in at 3.7% um, versus expectations of maybe 3.6, so nothing, nothing alarming. Um, and there's been no rapid escalation in the fighting in the Middle East in that it hasn't got to the point where neighboring countries are explicitly getting involved. Um, so what's the immediate future look like for emerging market issues? Cause other, other bond markets still got stuff done this week. So, uh, what are we, what are we saying for next week?
2: I think that there will be deals is, um, the impression I've got speaking to some of the syndicate and DCM bankers, um, as you say, that the reaction to CPI, even though it was a little bit higher than expectations, it, it wasn't a disaster. Um, and interestingly, it, it's Gulf issuers, um, so the people that are geographically nearest to to Israel, that are likely to be tapping the primary market next week.
1: Presumably, that's that's based entirely on it not spilling over into any other countries. Yeah, that that's
2: the caveat. It's, as long as there's no escalation. Um, I think that the reason, that might sound surprising on the face of it, but the reason is that very few companies, whether they're state-owned or private in that part of the world, will have any operations in Israel um, or or in neighboring countries. So so the practical impact on their businesses is going to be quite low in in the immediate or non-existent in the immediate aftermath of
0: something like what's going on in Israel. And of course, they are generally very well rated from a credit point of view, and they tend to benefit when uh, commodity prices rise. And as we know, oil oil has um, has gone up, hasn't it?
2: Exactly, yeah. They're, they're in pretty good shape already, and, and this has done nothing to change that, even if it's a very unwelcome event.
0: Yeah. Now, um, our colleague, um, our emerging markets editor, Francesca Young, wrote an opinion piece this week, uh, sort of suggesting that perhaps um, everyone's being a bit complacent uh about about these uh about crises in general um this being the latest example of one i mean what's the impression you got george when you spoke to your contacts in emerging markets this week um i think i just to give a bit of background so you know what what francesca said was that this is just the latest um crisis where investors seem to have this sort of pollyanna uh, hope that things are just about to get better um, regardless of the regardless of all evidence and um, you know recent examples of that being transitory inflation that wasn't in no way transitory and um, you know the fact we're constantly being told that we're or it's believed that we're near peak rates and the fed will start cutting rates anytime soon uh, do you think this is the latest example of that what, 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 were, what were people's sentiment perhaps i think speaking
2: to a few fund managers they you know, uh, the conflicts in this part of the world, Israel with its neighbors has happened quite frequently over the past, well decades really, since the Israeli state was founded. So, and yeah, they, they do seem to say, we've seen this before, it's always blown over, um, whether it takes a couple of days, a couple of weeks, it, it's always settled down again. Um, I think the the thing that they find quite appealing with Israel is that Israel has always at least given off the impression that it has this sort of thing under control. So even when it does flare up, it doesn't last long um, I think the surprise element to this might have spooked them a little bit, but yeah, I think, and there's another analogy that you can draw with Russia and Ukraine, which when Russia annexed the Crimea in 2014, it caused a sort of rupture in the bond market for a while, but then it settled down again and it became, I guess you could say a little bit like there's something just going on in the background that, um, has never escalated. And so they almost think it never will. And then of course it did in in the very worst way. Yeah. yeah. Something
1: I've noticed when I, when I used to cover emerging markets as well, that EM investors more than any other investors get crisis fatigue so much quicker than, than other (laughs) investors. They just like crisis after crisis bounces around emerging markets in various forms. And you know, they have still got money to spend, right? They still need to do their jobs. So they just kind of, brush it off a lot quicker than than other markets. Yeah, I to say, is
0: it fatigue or is it that from a risk pr- perspective, they're just hard as nails? Because, you know, you wouldn't be in that asset class if you didn't have some degree of risk tolerance.
2: Exactly. It comes with the territory. You know, you're not going to be a, running a frontier debt market without... You, you just got to accept that this is going to happen. And, um, But yeah, I, I, but Russia and Ukraine, that, that proved that you can't be completely... Um, not head in the sand, but you you can't completely ignore that sometimes something will happen that um will you know be a disaster of the whole market and cost investors an awful lot of money
0: yeah, you can't be complacent and I guess because especially in uh emerging markets there those each issuer's market is a lot less liquid than some of the big uh western developed bond markets, and you always have this analogy of everybody running um to the uh, fire exit when there's a fire in the theater at the same time you know you can't all get out of those bonds if there's no one to sell to in the in a moment of crisis and i guess this is always the risk isn't it with emerging market bonds
2: yeah exactly if uh, yeah that's a perfect analogy um and yeah israel is one of the top rated sovereigns in semia it's it's a relatively wealthy country it's been economically stable um it doesn't issue a huge amount of bonds it's normally once a year often in january um, and I was speaking to investors this week, if, if this doesn't escalate and if this doesn't, um, you know, rumble on, then if we're, if Israel were to issue in January, it probably wouldn't have any problem doing so. And it may not even have to pay any extra premium um, because of what's happened.
1: But George, the uh, Israeli sovereign bonds aren't necessarily bought by traditional emerging market investors, are they?
2: Not necessarily, no. Um, as mentioned, it, it's a highly rated sovereign, so that in itself, you know, it'll trade quite tightly compared to um, other countries in emerging markets. So that's just not attractive from a price perspective, for a lot of emerging market investors, Um, but it's also not in in the various benchmarks, or at least some of them, um, which means that for investors that that follow a benchmark, they don't have to buy it if they don't want to. Um, So, yeah, I I think it has a very large uh, investor following in the US, for example, so it's not necessarily you know, Europe-based emerging market investors or um, Middle East emerging market investors. So yeah, it's not a traditional emerging market sovereign in that sense.
0: Well, firstly, the hope must be obviously that the trouble in israel and gaza de-escalate swiftly for the sake of all the innocent civilians caught up in it but to track how capital markets find their way back to normality be sure to read globalcapital.com and of course subscribe to this podcast thank you to mike and george uh, for joining me for recording this episode but most of all to you the listeners for tuning in we'll be back with more from the capital markets next week so thank you for listening and goodbye